bit at Joseph's life, which was a testimony of rejection and the glory of God. And so we're going to start in chapter 37 and begin in verse 18, and then we will skip over to chapter 50. If you'd like to follow along with me, please stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. 37, 18 through 28 says this, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh, and his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And then chapter 50, a lot transpires between this. You know the story. You know that Joseph is sold and then raised back up to power in Egypt. If you don't know the story, it's a great one to read. I recommend it to you highly. Chapter 50, verse 14 says, and after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you. Now, please forgive their trespasses of your servants of the God of the God of our father, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it to pass as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have during this point in our service to hear from you as revealed in your word. We pray, grant us ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds that can be transformed. We pray that you would give Nick the ability to communicate faithfully that which you want us to hear, and that we might leave transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There you go. Okay, if you would open your Bibles, now turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. And I know last week we spoke of the parable of the sower, and we're getting into a really interesting time in the book of Mark, getting into Jesus's parables, which is Jesus's one of his primary teaching tools that he likes to go to. And last week, we really got to the content of the parable. We got to see how 
the rejection, part of it, the reason why the crowd was rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel was because in part is the sin in their own hearts. They did not want to turn to God. They were doing what they wanted. They wanted to pursue the pleasures of sin. They did not like it when life got hard. They did not want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's only a partial answer to this question. And we know that in part because of how this very text is framed. It's framed with Jesus giving the parable. He Then he tells the purpose, and then he explains the parable. And you see that same Mark and sandwich. You see the bread of the parable on each side. And then right in the center, the meat of this is where Jesus gives the purpose to why he gives parables. And we'll see that this purpose includes something far grander than just the fact that people choose not to follow God. Let's go ahead and read God's holy, inerrant word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Another seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. May indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And just, I want to read one other verse because this whole section is going to be encapsulated in verse 33 and verse 34, where he summarizes, Mark summarizes for us and says, with many such parables, verse 33, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the reading of God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do ask that he who has ears would hear, and that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear your word, and that we would seek to understand what you would have us to know. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray, amen. We come to a pretty hard truth here, and it really kind of strikes us in the gut when we get to verse 12, where Jesus says that the point of teaching in parables is so, that last line, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Let me just go ahead and tell you that this is 
a difficult text. It's one that I had to study. And in my preparation and digging into God's word, let me just go ahead and tell you, don't let the difficulty be something that keeps you at a distance. When you read hard things, that's the time and that's the point where you need to dig in and see what does God's word say. Give God the benefit of the doubt and dig in and see what he would teach us. You see, there's multiple reasons why Jesus is not surprised by rejection. Like I already said, one reason why Jesus was not surprised that people reflected, uh, rejected God's free offer of grace to sinners, one reason is because he knew his audience. He knew what was in the hearts of mankind. And he showed his knowledge of man and their heart in the parable of the soils, showing that there's many different types of people who are in that large, massive crowd that he's preaching to. And he knows that not all of them will respond because of the sin in their hearts. And only there's only one type, while there's multiple types of unbelief and unbelievers, there's only one type of good soil, one type of heart that is changed by the Holy Spirit, that's receptive to the word of God and obedient to it. So that's definitely one reason why Jesus is not surprised that so many people have started rejecting him and why so many people in the future would reject him. And actually, on a whole, Romans 11 tells us that the entire Jewish nation rejected Jesus Christ. And Romans chapter 11 really gives us a key insight into why Jesus is not surprised and why he shows no sense of surprise. It's because God is sovereign over everything. Now, every Christian intuitively knows that God is in control. We know that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. We know that he intricately designed this entire universe. We know that even the circumstances of our life, every Christian knows that the circumstances we find ourselves in are happening according to God's plan. And that gives us comfort, knowing he's in control. But we start to get really uncomfortable when we start to look at what Scripture talks about when it says the extent of God's sovereignty. To what extent is God in control of the events that happen in life? What we see Jesus recognizes here and why he is not surprised by rejection is the same thing that Joseph recognized in the text Steve just read for us. Joseph recognized at that very end of Genesis chapter 50 that what the brothers intended or planned for evil, in that same event, God planned for good. The brothers hated Joseph. They were annoyed with their pestering brother who kept talking about these dreams he had about how he was going to be greater than them. They despised him, and when they had an opportunity to sell him into slavery, they did it. The brothers sent Joseph to Egypt. But the thing is, is the brothers and their intentions and their plans are not the only plans that are going on. God also had a plan. And Joseph said, and God said that Joseph's, I'm getting that mixed up. Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50 that God had a plan to send Joseph to Egypt to go through all the different trials that he would end up going through, being locked up in prison, but eventually being the ruler of Egypt. Joseph ending up in Egypt was God's plan to save the Israelite family from starvation. What the brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. That's what we see. And this should give us confidence, even though typically 
This just produces a lot of foolish debates between Christians. And we're going to follow this thread here and see that Jesus is the one who actually is trusting in this, that he is, knows that his rejection, he's not surprised by it, because he recognizes that God's purposes prevail over everything. God's pr- purposes to do good in Joseph's life prevailed over the brother's intention to murder him, to sell him into slavery. And so the rejection of even this massive crowd was not going to even shake Jesus a little bit because he knew that God's plans would prevail. And the first way we see that is in the who Jesus chooses. God's purposes prevail through who Jesus chooses. You know, another way that we could look at this is who Jesus chooses is really the result of the method that he uses. We've already alluded to this. Jesus uses the tool of a parable to teach. He uses a parable to teach his audience. And we're told in verse 10, or verse 11, rather, that outside, that to insiders, Jesus gives the interpretation of parables, that he explained everything in private to his disciples, but to the crowd, everything was in parables. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, you recognize that parables are a teaching tool in the context of judgment. Think about the story of David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan confronts David in his sin, and how does he confront him? What tool does he use? Well, he uses a parable, a little story, an allegory where David did not even recognize, but he was, Nathan had put David in the story. Parables are throughout the entire Old Testament used in context of judgment. You know, tools are always chosen on the basis of what problems we encounter. If we have a nail, we need to use a hammer. If we have a screw, we need to use a screwdriver. And if they have that little T in the center, you use the Phillips screwdriver. I don't want to uh, go into any further details lest I you know, lose you in my vast knowledge. Isn't it interesting that Jesus uses the tools of a parable? What's the effect of the tool that he uses, this tool of judgment. Well, the effect, if you just imagine for a second of this large crowd, you're following Jesus, you've traveled for two weeks to hear Jesus, not necessarily hear what he teaches. What's drawn everyone in is the fact that he is able to work miracles. There might even be some rumors that he could be the Messiah himself. You are entertained by the amazing feats he's done. You wit- you've come to witness this entertaining performance. And then Jesus, when you come up to him, expecting to see miracles, he gets into a boat and he separates himself from everyone. And standing on the shore, he teaches a story. And it's a I mean, it's a kind of interesting story. He's telling the story of a farmer sowing seed. And whether or not he's depicting normal farming practices or not, what was extraordinary at least was this weird thing at the end where Jesus said that the seed that fell on good soil grew up yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Even if the whole situation was a very normal sewing technique, the end of it would have been a supernatural result. But then, if you notice in verse 10, there's a point when Jesus was alone. And then he explained it to those around him and his disciples. If you were part of that large crowd, only going seeking to be entertained you're probably pretty frustrated that day. You came to see something miraculous and all you got was a, some weird story about a farmer. 
And that was it. And then you walked away. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is using a tool that filters out the crowd. He's separating out with this. He tells them this weird, intriguing story that the only way that you get to know what it means is you have to go up to Jesus and ask him. Parables actually function. It's a tool of judgment on those who are just superficial outside observers who are only interested in being entertained or really, really just showing up to see what Jesus can do for you and your own happiness. If you're not interested in what Jesus teaches, if you're not interested in who he is and what he has to teach about the kingdom, guess what? You did not get the interpretation. Notice that when we're talking about God's sovereignty here, and this is what the kind of the general theme of this is, is that God's purposes prevail, that Jesus is not stiff-arming anybody. There are these people who are on the outside. The reason why they remain on the outside is because they really don't care to know the interpretation of the story. They're okay to leave. Jesus is not like the football player who's stiff-arming someone who's actually pursuing them to tackle them. No, Jesus invites all to come. He scatters the seed of God's word to the entire crowd. But the interpretation is given only to honest seekers. Just as a way of application, notice how this is the polar opposite of many ministry strategies today, identified as the seeker-sensitive movement. The idea that we can have this, this assumption that what unchurched people need is not the Bible, but they need pithy sermonettes on topics of immediate concern. They need funny stories, dramas, videos, or talks about money, marriage, or something of that kind. In order to really get them in, to, to get them in, we need to lower the threshold, make it entertaining, and then maybe get in the Bible stuff later. Make it easy for people to believe, basically. That's the root of that technique, is to say that everyone's a seeker and everyone's seeking after God, and we just need to make it as easy as possible. Jesus, the tool that he chooses in parables, is he actually makes it harder he makes it harder to follow him. Not harder in the sense of difficulty and he's putting them off, but he is, he is filtering out those superficial seekers and he teaches in such a way as to draw out those who truly want to know. God's purposes prevail in who Jesus chooses. And we know Jesus is choosing people because of the tool that he uses and how it acts as a filtration device of people. Second, though, the second point is with this division that he's made, choosing different people, the thing that distinguishes each group, the, the honest seekers from the superficial outside observers, is in what Jesus gives to each group. We've already said that what he gives to them is an explanation of all the parables. In verse 11, the first half, we're told exactly what, this, what these explanations are. They are the secrets or the secret of the kingdom of God. The word secret there is the same word derived from the English word mystery, musterion. The term mystery only appears this one time in Mark's gospel. But fortunately for us, it's used many times throughout the letters of Paul. Mystery, or the secrets, describe the wisdom of God that exceeds human understanding. Previously hidden thoughts of God that had to be revealed in order to be known. A secret 
is something that has to be known by divine revelation because it is outside of the realm of possibility for us to grasp in ourselves. Once again, we have a pretty telling application to us. In order for anyone to be saved, what they need is divine revelation. They need to be given the word of God and the explanation of what it says. What does the word mean? This is why the word of God is so central. And it's central to everything that we do here. Well, we don't, if you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we don't rely upon emotionally manipulative strategies. We don't teach in such a way and avoiding the hard truths of God's word. And right now, if you're dealing with the topic of God's sovereignty, that automatically is something just offensive to people's sensibilities. The only reason why I'm teaching it to you is because this is the word of God. It teaches the sovereignty of God over all things. I hope you notice that we don't play music while people are giving in order to manipulate them. We don't play music to help people make a decision for Christ. We don't have a moment in the service where we have an altar call, calling everyone forward to testify in front of everyone else. You know, people can be manipulated into doing all sorts of crazy things. It always amazes me how many people are manipulated into falling for scam calls and giving thousands of dollars or giving thousands of dollars to support prosperity gospel preachers. People can be manipulated. Emotions can be manipulated. Our minds can be manipulated. And even our wills can be manipulated. What we are to depend upon is the word of God. What Jesus was giving to everyone here in the word in verse 33 of chapter 4 was that with many such parables, he, Jesus, spoke the word to them. He gave the word to all, and for the explanation, some came. What we depend upon is the word of God and the power of the gospel itself to result in the conversion of sinners. Our responsibility as the church of Jesus Christ me to you and you to the world, is to scatter the seed, to scatter the seed of God's word, and let God handle the results. Because we don't just need divine revelation, but we also need the Holy Spirit's illumination. Did you not notice that what Jesus said in verse 9, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He was drawing people. He knew that the Father was drawing people to himself. And those who came to him did not come to them because they were smarter than other people or more humble than other people. The reason why they came to Jesus for an explanation was because the Holy Spirit had given them ears to hear. God's purposes prevail, and that's evidenced and shown by the fact that he gives certain people the privilege of having ears to hear. He gives them the privilege, and he gives them this privilege of the secret of the kingdom, the explanation to honest seekers. And now we arrive at the most difficult part of our text, one that uh, I will admit caused me a lot of trouble as I was seeking to understand what God's word says here. When Jesus quotes in verse 12, he says, so that we know that everything is outside is left in parables. The reason is verse 12, so that... And this word is not talking, Jesus is not saying that so that is, this prophecy will be fulfilled. So that is not that this is the result or 
Rather, that what Jesus is saying is that everything is in parables for the result. I misspoke there. For the result. And this is a scary thing. For the result that they may, in the verbiage there, in the Greek says, seeing they may see, but not perceive. Hearing they may hear, but not in the same word there is used here. Understand, grasp. And I hope that when you encounter texts like this in the future that are difficult, that it will cause you to dig. Because we're going to about to see some of the results of such digging. Jesus here, if you notice in the ESV, is kind of bracketed off to the side in quotations. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. And if you want to do this investigation yourself of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, let me go ahead and give you a head start. You need to start at the beginning of Isaiah. You need to read from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 6 if you're going to understand how this quote is being utilized by Jesus. And what you'll discover is at the very beginning of Isaiah in chapter 1, we know that the situation Israel is in is in estrangement to God. They have forgotten the God of their fathers and instead have chosen their sin. They have filled themselves up with iniquity and have forgotten their God, even turning to other gods. They followed their own hearts and acted as they wanted. But God throughout history has shown, in Isaiah chapter 5, it speaks to the fact that God has shown his mercy and his kind to Israel time and time again. That their very origin story was God saving them out of Egypt when they did not deserve it. He planted a vineyard. And when he came to the vine to see if it would bear fruit, God was frustrated that it bore none. Instead, they chose to reject God. And then something really interesting happens in chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is predominantly known for when God takes Isaiah and reveals to him a vision of his glory. The glory of God is what Isaiah sees. He sees God in his throne room. You see the worship of him by the angels and every creature in heaven. You see the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does God do? He takes this man... Isaiah, a man of unclean lips, these are his words, not mine, a man of unclean lips who dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he takes him and atones for his sin. John chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus tells us that it's in light of these things, it's in light of the light that Isaiah had been shown before his eyes, that God then delivers his judgment upon the people. That he had shown Isaiah his glory. And now he was going to blind the eyes of his people. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not hear. Lest they turn and be healed. And the ultimate then there, Mark is trying to point out, is that their healing Isaiah's point was forgiveness. You see, what God, the judgment God had pronounced on Israel is that those who reject him, they don't want anything to do with God. And God says, fine, you don't want me, you won't have me. You don't want my way of life, you can live your own way of life. It's what's described in Romans chapter 1, verse 28, when God says that he, that all, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, 
God's judgment is completely fair. He gave them exactly what they wanted. They did not want God, and God gave them what he wanted. they wanted. Their own sin and his abandonment. Of course, though, what they did not desire and what no sinner desires is the consequences of those actions. They want to live a life full of pleasure and in rebellion to God, but they don't want the consequences for that. But you know what? We can't choose. If we don't choose God, if we choose to live in our rebellion, we've chosen our fate. We have willfully chosen the consequences, and the consequences, we are told, is eternity in hell. You know, the same purpose of God prevailing, we see in John chapter 3, verse 16, where we're told that for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We typically end there. But verse 18 goes on. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light of the world has come, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John, throughout his gospel, picks up on this same imagery that originated in Isaiah, that God is a light shining in the world, And the reason why they reject their God is because they dwell in darkness and they love the darkness. They love their sin. And if you ask any sinner, ultimately, why they choose to do what they do, they do it because they want it. That is a sad reality. And when Jesus quotes it here, we're very fortunate that Jesus is not the only one to quote this text. Paul quotes this text and uses it in the same exact manner in Acts chapter 28, verse 26, and in Romans 11, verse 7. And in both instances, Paul is confronting the Jews and explaining their rejection of their Messiah. In Acts 28, He goes into a synagogue in Rome, and he shares the gospel with them. And some believe, but some doubted. And Paul gets fed up. He's been preaching the gospel throughout the entire book of Acts, and he's finally frustrated. And what he says at the end of Acts, in verse 28, is he says, Go to the Gentiles, for they will listen. And he explains this as in a text that I've already alluded to once in Romans chapter 11. Paul explains there that the national rejection of Israel, the national rejection by Israel of Jesus was not something that was outside of God's plan. It was not outside of God's sovereign purposes. You see, the culminative effect of all these things God's purposes prevailing over all things, and how Jesus functions in that and trusts in God's sovereignty by choosing a people to reveal the mystery, by giving to the real, honest, sincere seekers the secrets of the kingdom, and Jesus denying to those who are on the outside who remain in darkness and love the darkness— The net effect of all this was to work to God's, to accomplish God's purposes. What could God's purposes be in this large crowd, the majority of which would reject the Lord Jesus Christ? Can anything good come out of this? Can anything good come out of the majority of the 
Jewish nation rejecting their Messiah. Isaiah, Romans chapter 11 says, absolutely. This is the way in God's sovereign plan that God set it up to affect the salvation of all the other nations. All the other people groups of the world received the gospel because the Jews rejected their Messiah. And that was all according to God's plan. What does this all mean? Where do we come to in this? What Jesus demonstrates for us is that God, that what he trusts in, he trusts in God sovereignly to prevail in all of his purposes, specifically in the success of the kingdom. See, while Isaiah ended with hopelessness in a certain sense in his ministry, his ministry was to blind people who would reject God's good news, causing the Israelites to go into exile. But Jesus uses Isaiah's quotation as a way of giving hope, not to those who stand on the outside. Jesus does not give any hope of salvation to those who do not follow him. He gives salvation and gives hope of salvation to those who follow him and believe in his word. That's the significance that he explained, and we said lastly, of the supernatural results. The supernatural result of some, the good soil, yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. See, this simple principle that God's purposes prevail being why Jesus is not surprised by rejection can be summarized in one line. Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. God says, I will have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on what? Upon God who has mercy. See, my friends, if that's the, where our hope of our salvation resides, on the fact that God is merciful to those whom he will have mercy, then our salvation is sure. The success of the kingdom, guaranteed. And Jesus was explained to his disciples in the midst of all this rejection, they're seeing, looking at their circumstances and saying, what's going on? Jesus says, don't worry. God has a plan. God will save all those he determines to save. And guess what? That's what's happened in human history. The nations have come and have borne fruit, supernatural fruit that we could have never anticipated. Who could have anticipated that this small country, smaller than the state of Virginia, would produce a movement, a following of the Lord Jesus Christ that would change and reshape the world. That's what's happened. And the reason why it happened is not because of human exertion or human will, but because God has a plan that he's working out in all of human history. At this point, I think, especially maybe if we're looking at seeker-sensitive context, we this church might receive, and the PCA as a whole, might receive the toxic label of Calvinism. That God is sovereign over all things. And I just want to let you know, if you're not aware and you live in a bubble, that if you believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for God's glory alone. The thing that puts you into the minority, and I'm talking about of the church in general, if you confess those things, you're in the minority. Most people do not believe those things. And it's not that they, don't, they deny God's graciousness or deny that faith is an element or that Jesus Christ is a way or that God's glory is one thing that salvation is about. It's the alone part that causes people trouble. 
You might be in the minority, but the reason why we have to believe it is because God's word teaches it. You know, the funny thing is that every Christian is actually, really, every true Christian, every true seeker is a Calvinist. I, that, that might surprise you. You might not even believe it. You might be, I might be talking about you, and you're like, no way, that is not true. I am not a Calvinist. Well, I would suggest to you to read a book. Jerry Packer, he wrote a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And any reading suggestions that I give you is going to be a small book. It's a little book, and it's a helpful book. And in it, J.R. Packer talks about how everyone, when they pray, prays like a Calvinist. Because prayer is not an attempt of the Christian to force God's hand, but it's a humble acknowledgement of dependence upon God. Isn't that why we pray? We pray because we know that we're dependent upon God and his grace. We know that when we look back as a true Christian, when we pray and we thank God for our own conversion, we know that God was fully responsible for it. We know that God did a miracle of work in our hearts and that we would have never in our own circumstances would have ever chosen to follow him. And we know, every true Christian knows when they're praying, they don't pray for their friend. God, make Johnny smart like me so that he understands the message of the Bible. No true Christian prays, God, could you please make Johnny as humble as I am? I recognize my sin. I know that I need a Savior. He's just not humble enough. Otherwise, he'd be saved. No, every true Christian prays, God, give him eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of his word. That's how every true Christian prays. Every true Christian knows that the success of evangelism, the success of God's word working in your hearts depends fully on the power of the living God to change your hearts and minds and to win you to himself. That's the prayer of every Christian. And that's the prayer that we need to go to him now. And let's go to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have been given an opportunity in reading your word that is not given to everyone. This whole crowd, this large crowd, the vast majority, besides 12 and a few other following disciples, they did not receive the interpretation of the parable that we received last week. But we have. Everyone in this room has been given the opportunity to hear the word of God explained. And Lord, we know that that explanation is not enough. We know that this explanation can fall on deaf ears on those who do not want to seek to know, to seek to understand your ways and to understand your word. We pray that you would give us faith in you, faith to trust in your promises, that whatever faith that you've given us now, that you would nurture it and grow it to full health, fully trusting in you for everything. For we are all weak and we often stumble. And we know that just as the beginning of our faith, we needed the Holy Spirit to enable us and give us strength. We need you every day. And Lord, we pray, we do pray for the conversion of sinners. We thank you that we do not live in a day where rejection is being used as the means of a national rejection is being used as a means to send it to others. But Lord, the gospel has come to us. That we here in this church are the fruits, the hundredfold of the fruitfulness of the gospel ministry going out into the world. And we pray that we would continue this spread. That we would preach the good news, your word, to all the nations, knowing that it within the gospel is the power of God to save sinners. We pray in this in light that we would always seek to depend wholly and only on the word of God. That we would not seek to put our trust in any other means or any other tactics 
to win sinners, but only the word of God, that we would not seek to win others by manipulation or by clever strategies, but that we would stick to the simple means of grace. It's Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I'll go ahead and call the elders up to the table to help me to assist me in serving the Lord's Supper. We depend upon the simple means of grace in this church because the Lord Jesus Christ uses these means to save sinners. And not just to save them, but he uses his word to nourish the faith of his people. Hear the words of institution. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You see, this, is, this was not the first time and this is not the last time that God gave a hard word, that Jesus gave a hard word to people. This is your Sabbath, Sunday homework. Read John chapter 6. He gives them a hard word. He has a crowd following him. He says, if you want eternal life, eat my bread, eat my body, and drink my blood. And that word reduced the whole crowd to nothing. Not very seeker-friendly. But you know what happened? Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, will you leave me too? And Peter said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the son of God. See, if you've been baptized, if you've professed faith and you have not let this hard word bar you and not stopped you from seeking after to know who Jesus Christ is, but you have professed your faith and have sought him and have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you are a member of a Bible-believing church in good standing, not living in your sin, but have turned in repentance and faith, this table is for you. This table is for God's people to have their faith nourished. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this meal. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts and prepare our hearts for the word that we're about to receive in visible form. We are so thankful.